You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome to this episode of Seven Miles Deal Talk. I'm Leroy Davis, and I'm here with Tom Delbrook, who we just brought on as a partner based in Atlanta. And we've actually had, we've known Tom for a good long while just because he's been around the technology services ecosystem for some time. So we're really happy to have him on board. I think he brings a lot to the table. He's, He's been in a number of different roles in the past, including most recently corporate development with Cognizant. Prior to that, he's with Soft Vision. And prior to that was in uh, investment banking roles, which is where he's back to now in addition to some other corporate roles. So we're really excited about it. Tom, welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks, Lira. Tom, please introduce yourself and maybe just describe how you got to where you are and we can go from there. Probably too much time, but um, I grew up, you know, literally I tell people loading trucks at UPS. (laughs) simple business. You pick them up and deliver and anybody can do it. So, you know, I launched my career doing kind of a part-time job to get through college that ultimately became my career for, you know, the first half of my career, I would say. So, you know, United Parcel Service grew up through that organization and gravitated towards kind of deals and acquisitions over time, kind of worked my way up through accounting, finance, treasurer of UPS for a short period of time and then ran their finance organization. Ultimately, it seems like any job I ever do, I end up falling in love with deals and finding my way to wherever acquisitions are happening, wherever I'm at, regardless of my title and my role. UPS was very, you know, a great business to learn from. You know, you learn what good looks like, but ultimately they're willing to always constantly challenge you and, you know, give you jobs you're not anywhere near prepared for and see if you can pull it off. <laughs> so yeah. it was it was quite the opportunity and you know kind of like retiring from cognizant and and joining you know seven mile is let's do it again, right? So I never want to get too comfortable. And I think that lends itself to you know what's going on with this digital movement and, and moving people have to get out of their comfort zone, have to be willing to think new new models, new ways of doing things. So really I walk the walk or walk the talk, as they say, as it relates to that, like you have to be willing to put yourself out there. And, you know, I think challenging myself is just something I grew up with at at UPS. As you said, I was a banker at Credit Suisse for a while doing transportation, logistics and shipping. Decided that my first go at investment banking was during the Great Recession of 2008-9. So started out with a flurry and (laughs) quickly realized that, you know, transportation when the economy was dead on its back, was not the right place to be and convince myself somehow or convince somebody to take a chance with me and be willing again. And this time it was an entrepreneur who basically added me to his company to, to you know, reinvent myself as kind of an IT guy, if you will. So I was looking at the demand for technology. Didn't seem to suffer at all in 2008, Leroy, right? So you know, a lot of the other things in, in the economy basically came to a standstill, whether that was trucking or freight and all those things. But there was still a tremendous demand for talent and technology even back then. 
And I just looked at that and said, hey, you know, I'm going to hitch something onto something. I'm going to hitch onto something that's growing. And again, that was 2010. I haven't looked back in over a decade and it continues to just get more robust. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the 08, 09 time period. That's around the same time we started the firm. And I've been doing M&A in the tech services cycle for a while. So the first real cycle that I went through was the, probably the Y2K and then the dot-com crash thing. And it's interesting, 08, 08 and 09, tech services did not fare so well, and we lived through it. And then, however, this recent turbulence in the market that's occurred because of COVID, man, it's been the you know tech services has really benefited in a significant way. Like 2021 were great years for us, which I feel badly about saying because it was they've been challenging for a lot of people, but you know economically they've been good years. Why do you think that is? Like what what's going on in the tech services cycle? Tech yeah. you were yeah. now less exposed to downturns. Well, I think a couple things, right? And you know, maybe I should leave off with my career and I'll circle back. So 2008, <laughs> nine for me. So the company I started with was more of a traditional legacy Indian outsourcing model. So it was still back when, you know, that you mentioned Y2K. I mean, it was all, I mean, if you look at the large Indian outsourcing, all those companies that grew up around Y2K and just never slowed down. I mean, even Cognizant company's been around maybe 30 years. I mean, spun out of Dun & Bradstreet and grew to, you know, Fortune 200 company, 18 plus billion dollars in revenue, 40 plus, you know, billion dollar market cap, which was really built around, you know, kind of that whole get offshore, find cheaper resources to basically do things. And that was a tide that was still relevant in 2010, 2011, 2012. When I first realized working at SoftVision, and so having having left Credit Suisse and basically reinvented myself, you know, with a IT servicing business called Software Paradigms International, we were focused on retail. So we did a lot of work with Macy's, we did a lot of work with Saks Fifth Avenue, other retailers, and it was pretty amazing when Amazon, interesting enough, became the largest apparel retailer in the U.S. And you're like, how the hell is that even possible (laughs) when you have the likes of Macy's and real large department stores? And we basically decided at that point we needed to pivot towards really digital mobile because we basically saw this e-commerce emerging that, you know, with Amazon becoming, and this was well before COVID. And really from our perspective at SoftVision, or it was going to be called Software Paradigms International at the time, we realized that we really needed to basically get into mobile, which led to us taking in some private equity money. And then we bought a company called SoftVision, which had about a thousand plus engineers in Romania. And at that time, doing digital transformation also meant agile development, not waterfall development. So the whole play of outsourcing to India, where you, you build some software for nine months, and then you test it, you bring it back, and then you hope it basically plugs in that was old school, right? I mean, you really had to basically do development on the fly, meaning agile development. So the West became, or the East came West, you needed resources in the US. The models started to change and the demand for talent, whether it be Eastern Europe or even nearshore, is basically just to kind of get people more closer to where that development's happening in the Western markets, whether it's US or even Western Europe. So what you saw was basically the demand changing dramatically and the mobile device, the handheld, if you will, became kind of, you know, the center of the universe and people weren't basically logging on to computers. They were using their smartphones to basically do everything. So you needed mobile development. So that was really prior to kind of the whole COVID thing. And then I guess when COVID hit and brick and mortar shut down, you know, completely, then you really had, okay, you have all this 
folks looking, how do I find my client or my customer where they are? If they're not at the you know shopping mall or they're not in the Macy's department store, I still got a contact with them. So everyone started building enterprise quality apps to basically reach individuals and basically digital transformation, you know, was already starting, but really took a whole new dimension. And ultimately people that had five, six year roadmaps of what they needed, you know, got accelerated into, you know, three, four quarters. And people realize there's resources out there that can do this work. So it's really just pulling forward, you know, the development plans. And and it's a matter of life and death, honestly. I mean, obviously you mentioned COVID and horrible thing that happened to, you know, I don't know how many millions of people, but it's ultimately from a business perspective has really changed how all business has to think about their business and position themselves for the future. So I think it's that just the demand for engineers, the demand for people that can code certain things and, and build product is just incredible. And it's, it's all being pulled through. Yeah, that's right. You know, the other thing we keep going back to Y2K a little bit, it seems like in the last past downturns, downturns, IT services in a lot of cases, aside from like the Y2K remediation, which was not so much discretionary, a lot of the work was ERP related, maybe supply chain related, et cetera. And the, ROI on those projects was not as hard and fast as it is today because the whole whole e-commerce thing has pushed it more into a revenue game and people are a lot more willing to to spend money on those projects particularly in, a, in, a, in an age where as you say you know folks like Amazon are the the largest retailer so it doesn't seem like the whole tech thing has just kind of evolved a bit in that regard another thing that's happened Tom as you know, is that private equity has gotten a lot more involved, at least from our perspective, in IT services than it was, I don't know, 10 years ago or more. And I know that Soft Vision was a was a private equity backed by Tower Arts. What, what do you make of this recent, or within the past five to seven years anyway, increased interest by private equity into IT services? Yeah, let me touch on one thing first on that, because you, you you triggered something when you said you know discretionary and if you think, and I'll get to the, the P term and I'll explain why people are making that play. But if you think about the IT department for years, even where I grew up at United Parcel Service, um, you know, the person that ran IT was usually some of the camps of the finance organization. <laughs> it was always kind of a cost center. It was basically often reported into the CFO if it wasn't run directly by the CFO. And it was really about who has sense of the budget, who has a sense of what capital we can spend on projects, what ones do we have to do, which ones can we defer, you know, are we building other things in capital that we need to buy things? And I think what's happened is, you, you said it, like e-commerce, digital engineering, product engineering, all that is basically the revenue line. It's not a cost center anymore. So you've seen a massive change of the CIO or the CTOs becoming business people working directly for the CEO in many cases, and other cases working for a chief marketing officer. and. IT outsourcing, you always look at who's the buyer, right? If the buyer is a business person, it's really part of the revenue and it's cost doesn't matter. It's not really a commodity. It's basically how quick can we go? Because if we don't have the right product, we're going to go out of business. So we really need to spend money. And to your point, there is a return on investment you can make. It's basically your, your revenue <laughs> where it's not about saving money. I think the PE firms have been kind of reluctant initially because they didn't really understand you know, statements of work. There's not recurring revenue. They got comfortable with SaaS stuff and, and, and computer software and things like that. But 
when you look at IT companies and you say, okay, I have this master service agreement with this company and I do development for them, for example. And it's like, okay, what happens in these statement of works basically dictate how much, you know, so if, if you're a private equity firm who's looking for leverage, you're kind of like, well, does this recur? And, you know, it says here, you're going to do this project for nine months. And what I think people got comfortable with is the recurring nature of development, right? Because every CTO out there, basically like everybody else in the world has a roadmap of things that they need to do for the next five years and they just don't have enough people to do it. And there's, you can't do them all at the same time. So yes, you're working on one project, but if you have domain expertise and you have developers and and, and a knowledge base that understands you, there's always the next project, right? It's constant, right? And if you get in there, it's kind of the land and expand you basically get in there, make yourself relevant, the work will continue. There's no lack of work going on. So I think PE firms got comfortable and then the lending institution, the lending you know, associated with PE got comfortable with the recurring revenue based on the sheer supply demand imbalance between the demand for development and the people that are working. So if you're basically relevant and you have a significant relationship, it used to be Sticky was bad. Sticky here is good. Like if you have concentration and recurring revenue, that means you're relevant to that large enterprise. I think for most folks, a lot of it goes to if can you do work for enterprise clients? If you're just doing IT work for, you know, mom and pa or local businesses, that's less interesting. But if you're a small firm and you're able to basically deliver to enterprise level Fortune 200, Fortune 500, you know, global 2000 like clients, you're really relevant for almost any strategic, right? Those are the kind of people they want. And the demand is just crazy. So, and software valuations, as you know, have gotten so out of hand relative to where they've been. PE just can't, that's a venture play. And I, I think venture is more focused now is, is getting even focused on more PE type stuff. And PE is getting, you know, especially growth PE funds are getting more focused on kind of venture like plays. So I think a lot of business tech enabled services give you a lot of that growth that you see in software but you take the bottom out as far as the risk to the downside and you basically don't have to pay up. So I think a lot of software plays and the valuations you see in some high flyers is really kind of looking at them more through a recurring revenue or software lens, even though that's not a product, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned is the whole supply demand imbalance. And it seems like that's manifesting itself in in a few ways. One, I mean, everyone's talking about inflation these days and, that's uh, manifested in higher wages, particularly in the tech services space. Have you, I mean, in your recent experience with in the corporate end of things, have you seen companies been able to manage the their customer pricing aspect of that to offset wage increases? Or are you seeing a lag where there's margin compression initially, but then it's going to work itself out maybe in a, a couple of quarters or so once pricing can adjust? Or how, how are you seeing that play out? Yeah, well, I think I think right now the demand is the demand for talent. I mean, any relevant, and again, this is supply and demand to some degree too. If you're a cobalt developer, you're probably not in great demand. But you know, if you're if you know if you are a full stack engineer, you can work anywhere you want, and there's probably 30 openings you can get within three days, like just about anywhere in the world. And the other beauty is you can work from home, you work remotely. I think a couple of things going on. I do think that you know the demand will be there for some time. Uh, as I said, that you know it's. You don't even need to sell this. I mean, the openings, if you just look at any large IT outsourcing firm or any company, they're just 
open for look at the one ads who's looking for what right you can see the demand these kids have and it's it's great right there, there's unlimited opportunity i think depending on who you are if, if you're a, you know a, a, you know multinational company and you need to do development you're thinking to yourself kind of how do i afford you know these you know so there is short term you know you have to pay up to get talent um you obviously got to get a higher bill rate so to your point, if, if it's e-commerce, it's tied to the revenue line, you're paying up for that. So you're squeezing the commodity type stuff. So there's, and that's ultimately what was hurting some of the large, the largest companies, the IBMs and others that have, you know, the lion's share of the spend with a CIO, he's squeezing them to free up budget to basically go then to do all the CEOs things that he's wishing they could do, which is bringing these boutique players in to concentrate more on kind of the front end development, those kind of things. So you got the legacy firms being squeezed and basically saying, do the same thing you did last year on my maintenance and the, you know, the support type stuff. Certain things are now kind of, you know, with cybersecurity, I'd say the big thing is a lot of money being spent on that. And if you're on a board of directors of a public company, you don't want to be that person. <laughs> so you're going to make sure they spend the money. You don't need the maze attack. You don't need all those things. So there are those that are spending money on those necessary. So it's really, if you've got the right solution, you're doing real development, you got the right people, you can extract a premium, but not everybody's getting that premium. So it depends kind of where you're at and those kind of things. Right. Tom, you mentioned cybersecurity, you mentioned e-commerce. What are some other areas where you expect to see continued runway and interest and demand over the next couple, three years? Well, I think the play that's really, I mean, so there's been this whole cloud migration thing that makes all the sense in the world. And some of that's tied with cyber and everything, but you got your hyperscalers out there, your, you know, your, your, your AWSs, your Microsoft Azures, your, your Google CP kind of stuff. And that's kind of coming together. So there's a lot of legacy stuff being brought onto the cloud. And a lot of that is what's sucking up a lot of the demand for engineers right now. So there's this natural kind of progression movement to the cloud. And then you got digital disruption happening at the same time and all those people. So if you're able to be a good software architect and you can help people bring stuff to the cloud efficiently, that's valuable, but you need those same people to develop on the cloud. <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of this, this one time, I don't want to say it's a one time because there will be cloud migration for the next decade or so because we're only X percent of the way there, but that's demanding. I, I think data, you know, machine learning, Embedded software, all those things are kind of the rage right now. And again, combined with having some knowledge on, on that hyperscaler, right? So where those intersect, I think, is extremely unique opportunities. But, you know, I'd say analytics, data, machine learning. I mean, autonomous cars gets all the buzz and all that, but that's a very small sliver of what's going on in, in tech. <laughs> so. Right, right. And Tom, among the many reasons we're excited to be working with you, among them, one of them is the fact that you've been a buyer at Cognizant and, and SoftVision, for that matter. You've been a seller and you've been an M&A advisor. So you kind of bring a lot to the table in terms of different perspectives. If you had a few things you were going to give advice to company contemplating a sale within the next couple of years, I know, I know that that's a Difficult question because there's like a lot of different ways to answer them. But what what jumps to your mind immediately? Like, immediately, like a, a few things to do if you can do them. If you're contemplating a sale in the next year or two. Yeah. No. I, I thank you for the question. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I've always looked and say, you know, who's the most logical strategic buyer for an asset, right? And 
and sometimes you don't think, you know, it, it's, it's not obvious. You know, when I was always, whether I was in the buy side or the sell side, take meetings, talk a lot, listen. If you're thinking about sell, you know, don't sell to the first person that shows up. <laughs> Unless it's real compelling, you should get to know the potential buyers and, and don't have blinders. Like, it's amazing when you're running a business, people call you and say, you know, I had meetings with people I would never have dreamt would be interested in a, in a soft vision, for example. So, you know, when you go to hire an advisor, get somebody who's got a broad perspective to make sure they don't just take you to the same usual suspects. You really got to think about how you're positioning your business, think through, you know, kind of who might be a logical buyer, really have a good answer to, you know, are you looking to sell to a strategic? Are you, you know, would you be interested in PE? How you answer questions really matters. And, you know, first impressions matter, right? So, being prepared, having somebody who understands the buyer psyche, I think is very valuable. And I think I can bring that where I can kind of be thoughtful about preparing them for the questions they're going to get, how you answer it, and you know the right ways and the wrong ways to answer some questions. But And it's not about being phony or making something up or, you know, as they say, dressing up the pig to make it look better. I'm, I'm saying just be prepared and be thoughtful about, otherwise you come across a little like you don't know. <laughs> and Oh, you know, even when you're an M&A, it may not even be your money if you're a strategic, but it's your reputation, right? So when you stick your neck out as a sponsor for something, you want to make sure it works. So I just say talk to a lot of people, companies, get to know people. And I, I think advisors like Seven Mile who know a lot of people, it's a good way to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Tom, I was thinking back on how we got to know you. I, I know that one of my first meaningful interactions with you. I think I'd probably spoken to you before, but the first one I really recall that was meaningful was on, we were working on the sale of Aero Digital to Sawfish. And, and I remember I was with John Cooper in Phoenix, Arizona on a pitch and we were taking like a lunch break or something. We, were, we had some time in the middle of the day and we went up a hike on um, Camelback Mountain. Awesome. Right up right outside of Phoenix. And I, it's one of, one of the more consequential hikes I've ever had because we were, we were working on the Aero deal. I don't even know if I ever told you this, but anyway, John and I were like, hey, we just did our pitch. We had something else going in the afternoon. Let's just go hike up hike up there. So we did it. And we already had like our buyer kind of, we thought we knew who the buyer was for Aero at that point. And we were certainly still in discussions with Sawfish, but we thought we knew which path we were going to. We kind of had our deal inked. I was close to the top and I remember you, you called me back. Like, I wasn't thinking you were going to call me back. I remember like the last message. I was like, I don't know. I just thought you were kind of out. You called me back and I was like, John, man, we're hiking. You think I should answer this? I did. And, you know, you expressed further interest in, in the process and thought you might be able to get there on price, et cetera. And, you know, lo and behold, you got the deal done with Era, which I hope turned out to be a great deal for Soft Vision. So we got the deal done. Later, Mark Landry, who was a CEO at Arrow, joined us, and then now you're you're joining us. So it was one of those deals and times and places where kind of everything comes together. And I, I'll close with what I said at the beginning. We we're we're really generally excited to to have you on board. We we I don't we've never brought on someone as a partner, you know, right out of the gate. You're the first time we've done it, and we couldn't be more confident and enthusiastic about what that means and what what that means for the firm. So I, I, with all sincerity, we're, we're, we're really excited to have you on board, Tom. Well, that's great. And, and again, as I told, I think you and, and Tripp and Andy, it's 
I had my options of where to go, but, you know, getting to know you then and seeing other, how you've acted in those processes and buyers pay attention to bankers and how you hold yourself out and how do you go to, how do you go to market and how you treat people. And, you know, it's um, hopefully my reputation precedes me, people that know me, very transparent, honest person. And, and, and like I said, I think we align well in that regards to, you know, just wanting to do good M&A, not just do deals for deals sake, but to do good M&A where, you know, the buyers and sellers come together. And again, if, if you're not the right strategic buyer or something, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, those are things, but no, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely remember that. I was actually in the midst of also having the conversations with Cognizant about selling software. <laughs> it was, I had to keep my mind going two different directions. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and look forward to, you know, to doing stuff together with you and the great, you know, clients you've already established. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 